We'll turn your hearts over to God's Word as we open up Titus. We're going through our study of the book of Titus, a wonderful little uh, book that Paul penned to his letter to his uh, uh, brother in the faith, uh, disciple Titus. Paul wrote this, and he really wanted um, Titus to be instructed in the essential things that uh, a young pastor, a young uh, ministry leader would need at this time, this stage in ministry. And so uh, we turn our hearts to God's Word this morning, Titus chapter 2. Let me read for you uh, out of God's Word as you follow along in your personal copy. Uh, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. One thing you notice when you go through the uh, supermarket line, as you're standing in line waiting to be checked out, um, you're just bombarded with magazine covers of what look like beautiful people. You have beautiful faces, beautiful bodies, and you're, you're standing there and you're going, wow, um, these people are just incredibly gifted in their beauty. Um, they look healthy. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> some of those magazines run some pretty shoddy pictures of people too. But see, there's a, there's a, there's a thing in our culture today that kind of pushes and really has gone crazy after health, after beauty. There's nothing wrong with being beautiful. There's nothing wrong with being healthy. But there's a health and a, a beauty that goes beyond just the outward appearance, beloved. I'm talking about the health and the beauty of a person's inner soul, a, a person who develops godliness in their character, in their inner heart. Um, when we come to chapter 2 here, I think Paul wants Titus to understand that God intends for each person in the body of Christ to develop like and follow after Christ-like character. And also, that kind of a, a character hopefully conducts itself in a way that's honoring to the Lord so that His glory is not lost or uh, misinterpreted by a misdirected world. Uh, when we look at the church, the description of the church throughout the Bible, one description of the church is we're called the Bride of Christ. I remember on my wedding day, our wedding day, and I'm sure you can think back on yours, when they opened the doors in the back of the church and you looked back and you saw your lovely bride and you thought, wow, 
I'm blessed. <laughs> Look at this. You got beautiful dress on, hairs, everything just seemed perfect. Now, if that wasn't your experience, I apologize. <laughs> Maybe I'm bringing up bad memories. I don't know. <laughs> but when you think of a bride, you think of somebody who's elegantly dressed and beautiful. And see, that's what the church should be. The church should be developing as a healthy, beautiful bride of Christ. And corporately, we should be displaying the splendor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, In Ephesians 5.27, it describes us, the church, as His bride. And it says, He is committed to presenting us. And it says in Ephesians 5.27, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she, the the bride, would be holy and blameless. See, instead of growing more wrinkled over time, (laughs) the church grows less wrinkled, or it should. As you know, uh, it often takes a lifetime to build a good reputation. It really does. But you know what? That good reputation, even though it took a lifetime to build can be lost with one single, stupid, foolish action on our part. It's difficult to recover from something like that. I mean, you look at the church over the years, and you know we don't need to go on and go into all the details of all the, the, the uh, reputation of certain preachers who really tainted the Christian church in America the scandals that rocked not just the Protestant church, but the Catholic church as well. And see, the American unbelieving public doesn't distinguish between evangelicals and, and, and Catholics. They just say, yeah, they're all Christians. And they think that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And that gives them, that kind of behavior that's flawed and sinful gives them an excuse to reject Christ. Many unbelievers justify themselves saying, you know what, I, have, I may have my own faults, but at least I'm not a child molester. At least I'm not bilking innocent people out of their money so that I can live in luxury. At least I don't pretend to be religious like these hypocrites do. That's, that's what's in their mind. That's what they're thinking. And so the enemy damages the reputation of the gospel, the reputation of Christ, through a church that does not live in accord with how God has called us to live. So Paul writes Titus in chapter 2, and he begins, and he, he wants Titus to understand that the church should develop into a healthy, beautiful body so as to attract unbelievers to the Savior, not repel them. The theme of the church's witness to the world is mentioned, just look in our text in verse 5. It says, so the word of God will not be reviled, or the word is dishonored. Down in verse 8, same chapter, Titus 2, Paul tells Titus that his speech must be beyond reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And he mentions it again, even down in verse 10, talking to slaves. He says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, we should live lives in accord with the gospel to our calling so that we point people to the Savior, not repel them away. Well, how does the church develop into this kind of healthy body? How does the church develop into a church that that attracts people to Christ rather than repels them? 
I mean, if I had to sum it up in two words, I would say sound doctrine. It's sound doctrine. It's sound teaching. That's why Paul mentions it in verse 1. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He mentions it again in verse 7. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity. He mentions it again in verse 10. He says that they may adorn the doctrine of God and Savior. See, we have to believe in our heart of hearts as believers. 2 Timothy, 2, or 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that says all Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God. It comes out, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God is complete, equipped for every good work. That's what we're called to. And so Paul here in Titus chapter 2, he focuses basically on five groups in the church. He focuses on older men. He focuses on older women. He focuses on younger women, younger men, and then also slaves or servants. Now before we get into the text, I couldn't help but notice that there's some general observations here. First of all, There are legitimate age and gender distinctions within the church. There are legitimate age and and gender distinctions within the church. Paul has different counsel, beloved, for different age groups. He has different counsel for men and for women. He doesn't lump everybody into the same category. Oh, you're all just the body of Christ and I'm just going to tell you all. No, he breaks it out. Our modern day society would kind of rail against that they don't appreciate that they want a unisex society where there's no gender distinctions in society and even some churches have kind of embraced that to some degree here in san francisco you have small children that can choose which bathroom they want to use depending on their own sexual preference which is i mean you wonder how that's going to work out for them it's just crazy now, it's true that there are, distinct, there are no distinctions regarding salvation. Galatians 3.28 clearly teaches that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, in regard to salvation. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's true. But there are distinctions. Men are to be loving leaders in both the church and the home. Women are to be subject to their own husbands. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 23 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as in the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Even over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning just be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. See, it should help us to understand, it, it, it should not need to be said that God created us male and female. That's what he said. If you're created male, you don't seek a sex change operation to become a female and vice versa. Men basically should be masculine. Women should be feminine. God designed the sexes to complement one another. There shouldn't be any competition in that realm. Men should affirm the value of of women, and women should affirm the God-given role and strengths of men. So we're to relate to different ages and genders in appropriate ways. Paul points that out actually in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. He says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, and to the younger men as brothers, and the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So there is distinctions within the body of Christ. There's male, there's female, there's different age groups, and and Paul addresses that. But I also want to say this. There is to be interaction, not complete separation, among those different age groups in the church and the family of God. I mean, the church is, is referred to as the family of God, and in that family we share different ages, we share different Genders. The older have wisdom, the Bible tells us. They have experience. They should desire to impart that to those who are younger. The younger have idealism, energy, enthusiasm. Hopefully they can encourage the older. See, having older folks and younger folks together... I think is is a good thing. But it also can create some tension sometimes. See, God's design is that we learn to live in harmony and we learn to live from one another. I mean, that's one reason why we have one service here. And if we had two services, it would be the same service repeated. Some churches choose to have what they call a traditional service for the older people, and they have all hymns and a choir and big pipe organ. And then they have a service for younger people, and all the younger people come in, and they'll have the the praise band and some of the younger songs and no hymns. That was a fad for a while. I remember when we first came to Grace, I talked to a local pastor and he said, well, what are you going to do for worship? And I said, well, we just do worship. What do you mean? Oh, well, we're, we're, we're going to have two services now. We're going to have a traditional and a contemporary. I'm like, why would you do that? He goes, well, what do you guys do? I said, well, we just kind of do both. Oh, you can't do that. Said, why not? <laughs> Who says you can't do that? Well, you can't sing a hymn and then sing a contemporary song. It confuses the people. <laughs> Who cares whether it's Traditional or contemporary, that's irrelevant. It's, it's more what's the message behind it. 
I remember him laughing and telling me, yeah, yeah, try that. See how that works out for you. I saw him 12 years later and said, actually, it's working out pretty good for us. It's good to have the body of Christ together, beloved. It's good to come together so that we can worship together. And and the style of music is not the issue. Younger people need to learn some of the hymns that are rich in doctrine. Older people need to learn some of the newer songs. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have special ministries for certain age groups. Maybe you have a young couple's class or whatever. If there's certain needs they have, that's fine. But on Sunday morning, our worship service should be one that is made up of all ages, all genders, corporately. The text clearly shows that older believers have a responsibility to impart principles of practical Christian living to younger believers. So, yes, we're made up of various ages, various genders, but there should be interaction. There should be not separation. Thirdly, there are different opportunities and different weaknesses and temptations at different stages in life. When you think about this, younger people often have more energy and enthusiasm to devote to ministry. But you know what? If they have young children at home and busy careers, they may not have a lot of time. After your kids are out of the nest, you're going to have more time. But you're going to have less energy. (laughs) See, there's never a perfect time. You have to gear your life to that particular phase that you are in. Don't just use it as an excuse for non-commitment. Some pastors neglect their families for the sake of the ministry and end up losing their families at the cost of a ministry. Some couples neglect their marriages when their little children are there at home. The child rules the roost. Everything's focused on the child, the child, the child. Well, there's going to come a day, beloved, when that child is gone. And the two of you are going to look at each other and say, who are you? (laughs) We've been focusing on the child so much, we forgot about each other. Don't allow that to happen. Even older people have a temptation. They've worked 50, 60 years. They're in retirement. Now they can do whatever they want. They spend their days the way they want to spend them. They do what they want to do, feeling that somehow they're entitled to that. What a blessing it would be to be able to retire from full-time employment only to serve the Lord on a more full-time basis. Maybe you like to travel. Maybe you go to different countries and serve the Lord through mission trips. Who knows what God has for you. But each stage in life has a unique opportunity as well as a temptation. And we have to be careful with that. Well, With those general observations, let's look at our text beginning in verse 1. I think the first thing that we need to grow into a healthy, sound church is just what it says there. Sound doctrine is the foundation of godly living. He says, but as for you, he's contrasting Titus 
with the false teachers that we talked about in, in chapter 1. He describes him in verses 10 to 16. He t- t- tells us, Paul tells Titus that these false teachers were rebellious, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers, they upset whole families for basic greed, sordid gain, the almighty dollar. They taught Jewish myths and fables and even the commandments of men rather than the truth of God's word. It says in verses 15 to 16 that they were speculative, unbiblical. And that kind of teaching does not lead to godliness. It doesn't lead to good deeds. And so he says, by contrast, Titus, I want you to understand, you should speak or teach the things that are fitting, the things that are proper for sound doctrine. That word teach or speak there refers not only to just formal teaching, but also to everyday conversation. So this is very practical. Sound doctrine means teaching that produces spiritual health, growth. It's like eating good food. If you eat junk food, what's going to happen? It's going to mess you up. If you eat good food, then you're going to benefit from it. And Paul uses this word sound nine times in his pastoral epistles. So he obviously thought it was pretty important that sound doctrine be taught. He uses it five times in Titus. Chapter 1, verses 9, 13. Chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 8. He also uses it in First and Second Timothy. Now it's very important to understand that when he uses it back in verse 9... It says he must hold firm to to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. When he speaks in that frame, he's talking about the idea of teaching sound doctrine and refuting whatever is erroneous. But when he comes to verse 1 of chapter 2, it seems that it, it kind of changes. The flavor changes a little bit. And he, he wants us to know that there's a, a practical side to sound doctrine. There's a practical application to knowing what is right. And Paul always does that in his epistles. He always brings together the idea of sound doctrine with practical Christian living. I mentioned last week, if you read the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's doctrine. And then he jumps into how do you apply that doctrine in the last three chapters of Ephesians. Paul always brings those together. To have sound doctrine without practice is basically just dead religion, dead orthodoxy. But to have practice without the foundation of sound doctrine is just human moralism. It's just trying to do the right thing. So we need to understand who God is and who we are, and we need to understand God's way of salvation as revealed to us in the Scriptures. And as a result, that provides for us a proper foundation for holy living. I mean, stop and think about it. If you understand God's omnipresence, that God is everywhere all the time. If you understand God's omniscient, that God knows everything from the end to the beginning, from the beginning to the end, it will really affect how you relate to your family at home when no one's around. It will affect the way you live when when you're all by yourself. Because you're not really by yourself. God is there right with you, right beside you. He sees everything you're doing. So sound doctrine is very practical. And then he begins to list for us here in verse 2 these different age groups that we talked about. And the first one is older men. 
And he says, older men should be godly as to attract others to the Savior. Now, this list here is not comprehensive. In other words, there's not every Christian virtue listed here. He's just kind of practically throwing some things out to us. The term older men is obviously relative. Paul used it of himself when he was in his 60s. And the fact that Paul lists these qualities for older men to have shows that they're not automatically developed just because you get older. This isn't something that just happens when you get older, when you mature. No, it's something that has to be worked on. These are kind of checklists for us to check off. If you're an older person here today, and these qualities do not describe you, then you know what? You need to focus on it. You need to go before the Lord and say, wow, that's a good point. I need to look at that area of my life. Well, let's look at these things quickly. First, first of all, older men are to be sober-minded or temperate. The word literally means not intoxicated by wine or strong drink. It also has the meaning of being kind of clear-headed. You're not, you're not fogged up with a bunch of other concerns and other cares. You, you're kind of able to spiritually discern what's important. It's a qualification for elders and, and deacons and deaconesses as well, deacons' wives. So we, we have to have this clear-headedness about us. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but the older you get, the foggier it gets. You know, I was just, my daughter called me yesterday, and she said, you were going to tell me something this morning, but I had to go. What was it? And I'm like, uh, did we talk this morning? She goes, what do you mean? Yeah. I'm like, okay. Um, well, you said it, was, it sounded like it was important. What was it? I said, I don't even remember our conversation. I'm sorry. You know, and that's how it is. But it's not so much being able to recall things, but it's just being able to have focus on certain things, not being fogged up with a bunch of other concerns. Secondly, older men are to be dignified, it says. The word means to be serious in purpose or to have a kind of a personal dignity that invites honor and respect. It doesn't mean you walk around, you know, I'm dignified, you know, all serious and gloomy and no sense of humor at all. It refers to someone really who lives in light of eternity. They know that very soon they're going to stand before their God. It's also used of deacons and deaconesses. Third thing, older men are to be self-controlled or sensible. This is a requirement also for elders, but it's also a requirement for all believers. It's listed in 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8, Titus 2.12. But Paul uses it here, and when he uses this word, he, he uses it for each age group. He doesn't just use it for one, he uses it for all. It can be translated encourage. It means to be balanced. It means to be under control. The sensible person isn't impulsive or given over to various passions, going off in a million different directions. Not only self-controlled, but older men are to be sound in faith. As I said, sound means healthy. Older men should have a healthy faith in God that comes from their experience of a lifetime trusting God in practical matters. See, those are things that we can learn from our older folks. I remember talking to Al Swanson one day, and he said, oh boy, there's been, there's been days when we didn't know what was going to happen next. I mean, he, he went through the whole hard time with the, when there were, our country was going through such a struggle Dust Bowl days and everything. And I remember thinking, wow, he's been through a lot. 
Sound in faith. Older men are also to be sound in love, it says. As you grow, rather than becoming more grouchy, hard to live with, you should be becoming more loving. See, sometimes we use our older age as, well, you know, I'm just older. You know, and hey, I, I get it. I mean, you know, the older you get, the more settled you become. How many of you are sitting in the same seat as you did last week? I mean, that's real simple, right? Most of you. That's just a, you know, it doesn't even really matter what age you are. It's just habit. We're creatures of habit. Some more than others. I remember in one church, there was one, one guy, he, he would never sit in the same place. Ever. And I just, I asked him one time, I said, why don't you, he said, ah, it's just a different perspective. <laughs> you know, just a different, you know, certain people, you know, you kind of observe. Sometimes you sit in the back and, you know, you can see how, People, you know, are, are addressing the message or if they're playing on their phone or if they're writing, whatever they're doing. Or sometimes if I don't want to be distracted, I'll sit right up front. Just depends. It's always hard to pin down. It's like, well, okay, where is he? You know, you're always looking for him. But it's supposed to be sound in faith, sound in love. Don't grow, don't use your age as an excuse to become hard to live with. Rather than becoming more intolerant, and hardened toward others, you should be becoming more gracious and compassionate. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ was. Look at the list in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Align yourself up with that. Older men are also to be sound in steadfastness, or perseverance is the idea. See, older men should understand what it means to bear up under life's trials, because they've already done it. They've already been through them. And they've seen the promises of God come to fruition in their lives. See, we can tap into that as younger men. I'm putting myself in that category. And, <laughs> and as we tap into that, that should be an encouragement to us. See, rather than just simply dropping out of the race, older men understand what it means to continue and endure by fixing their eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse Chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Older men who have these qualities will stand out in the world. And people will point to them and say, wow, there's something different about it. And that will draw them to the Savior. Well, now he addresses older women. Verse 3. Because they're also supposed to be examples of godliness. They're supposed to be training younger women in the household of faith. Godly older women have an important role to play in God's healthy body, the church. First of all, older women are to be reverent in behavior. Obviously, that word behavior points to their demeanor, but it also points to their inner character. They're to be reverent. Literally, it means suitable to a sacred person. It's referred to as someone who could be a priestess in a temple. The reverent woman fears God and, and lives in his presence. It's a, she has a healthy respect for the Lord. Older women are not to be slanderers, or some translations say malicious gossips. That word, it's a single word in the Greek for slanderers, and it's, it's used 35 times of the devil himself. <laughs> It literally means to throw things at people. See, a godly woman will not repeat damaging stories of others. She will not spread rumors or half-truths. 
that damage someone's reputation. Very clear. Older women are also are not to be enslaved to much wine. Kind of speaks for itself. But there's a connection there between the loose tongue and an intoxicating drink. I'm sure we've all seen the person at the party that had too much to drink. <laughs> they become an embarrassment to whoever they're with and to themselves. A woman who drinks too much will probably talk too much. And I've met some older people. The older they grow, it seems a little easier to have a drink and block the aches and pains, drown the loneliness of depression. Before long, they find themselves addicted to something. That's sin. We need to be relying on the Lord and experiencing the joy of his salvation. Fourthly, older, men are to, older women are to teach what is good. Older women are to teach what is good. That word good is often translated beautiful or attractive. Note that this is meant for older women, not Titus. They're to teach the younger women how to be truly beautiful, namely, to be godly. The word encourage means to kind of make sensible. Uh, Younger women sometimes feel overwhelmed by the difficulties of rearing children, of keeping house, of trying to balance everything. Hopefully they don't look to Hollywood for their answers, but they find their answers in God's word. The older woman is there to come alongside them and help them think sensibly about the importance of their duties. It's especially important, even in our own church, as we see younger women coming to Christ, having children. It's important to come alongside them encourage them. Maybe they don't have that godly role mother, that godly role model in a mother that some of us have had. We need to be aware of that. We minister to one another. I mean, we live in a society today that tells the women, oh, forget about your husbands, forget about your families, you go do your own thing, you find a career You make a name for yourself. See, godly older women are there to talk some sense to them. Some of you older women have been married to the same man longer than some of us have been alive. You don't think that we can gain some wisdom from that? So don't feel left out. Now he changes and he goes, okay, younger women, older men, older women, younger women must be godly homemakers so the word of God will not be dishonored. That's what he says in verses 4 and 5. Many younger women have no understanding of how important the job of homemaking is. And a lot of them even lack the practical understanding and training to do it. I remember when I was in middle school, we had a certain uh, elective that we were allowed to take, and one of them was a uh, homemaking course, and I thought, 
So a couple of my friends said, this would be kind of cool, you know, it's probably going to be all full of girls, so let's sign up for this. So we did. And some guys thought we were nuts. But you know what? I'll never forget, I, to this day, I use what I learned in that, in that class. As silly as it was and wrong motives for me taking it, I can sew, sew a button on my jacket if it falls off. I can iron a pair of pants. I can cook a meal. A lot of things that I learned in that silly little class that I absorbed. And see, here he's talking about younger women. They, they need to know how to do this kind of stuff. And it's important that the older women make the, the younger women sensible. Basically, in seven areas, it points out here, it says younger women are to love their husband. Now, that might sound kind of crazy, but that's, that's very real. I always tell a couple when they're getting married and they're going through the counseling and everything, that, look, I understand, you know, this is the, kind of the, the romantic time in your marriage. You know, one day you're going to wake up and you're going to look at the other person and, what in the world? You know, what is going on? And you're going to have to choose to love that person because maybe that person in that moment, in that setting of an argument or whatever, it's not going to look very loving. Young women are to love their husbands. It takes deliberate effort. Because we know, guys, we're not always lovable. <laughs> so they need to work at that. The Paul, Paul uses that word here, and he implies a true uh, friendship of love. It's not something you know, romantic, kissy-facey kind of stuff. <laughs> we're talking about practical love relationship. And that husband and wife should always be cultivating a close companionship. And I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't come automatic. It's something I've got to purpose myself to do. Over the years, you know, my, my wife and I, we have conversations now and then. And sometimes those conversations, you know, she'll say, well, I, I just don't feel we're, we're, we're close. I don't feel, you know, I don't feel loved. And I'm like, what do you mean? We're married. I mean, that's my answer, right? Uh, that went over like a lead balloon. That's why the women are laughing. The guys are going, yeah, I tried that too. It didn't work very well for me either. You know, no, that, it, it takes work. You know, it, it takes time. It takes time to figure out, you know, what, what makes your wife t- tick? What, what, what pleases her? What is going to bless her? And usually it's not what we just think. You know, it's not the flowers when we come home from work. Here you go, dear. You know, they look at that and go, yeah, okay, whatever. Put them in the vase. You know, maybe it's, you know, getting the kids for bed an extra, an extra night so they don't have to. Maybe it's trying to get off of work a little early and coming home and say, hey, you know what, honey, I'm just going to watch the kids for you. I know you need to have a list of things you had to do. Why don't you just go do that? Take the afternoon off. See, small little things like that speak love to our wives because naturally we're unloving. But women need to, young women need to remind themselves, hey, I need to be loving my husband. And that love friendship really requires time to come together. The second thing, the younger women are to have love for their children. And you say, well, of course, that would come naturally. Well, not always. (laughs) When you have children and they're being disobedient and they're trying your patience, it's a very hard time. 
Because all of a sudden, as a mother, you're feeling certain feelings toward your children that you probably shouldn't be feeling. And so then all of a sudden, oh, I'm just unworthy as a mother. Now it's a very natural thing. Especially when they try your patience and they're being disobedient. But we need to be, young women need to be reminded, no, you need to love those children. I mean, if you discipline your, your children angrily, call them derogatory names, that's not just wrong. That's, that's really sinning before the Lord. Once again, go back to 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Read those qualities over of true biblical love. It describes how we can relate to our children even. And that Greek word here also implies that love of friendship. See, hopefully, as your children grow older, younger mothers, you're always going to be your child's mother. But I pray that as your children grow older, that you can really cultivate a friendship with them. It's so important. Thirdly, the younger women are to be self-controlled or sensible. There's that word again. It means to be kind of in rational control over the impulses and passions. Younger women are to be pure. That refers to sexual purity. Watch. Be careful what you read. Be careful what you watch. A lot of women who get caught up in affairs, it's not so much the sexual side, it's more the emotional side. There's a lot of women who've had emotional affairs with people just because they don't really have that kind of relationship with their husband. Their needs aren't being met, so they go somewhere else. Be careful of that. Young women are to be workers at home, it says. That sounds chauvinistic. It sounds sexist, but that's what God's Word says. That's God's design and His wisdom. That's how He created us. See, no woman really gets to end gets to the end of life and says, you know what, boy, I've, I've had a satisfying life as a corporate executive. <laughs> it's just not how we're geared. But when you see your family walking with God and loving one another, that truly brings joy. And you have to work to make your home a beautiful and a pleasant place for your family. It's not easy. It's difficult sometimes. The women are to be kind Sixthly, says there that literally the word is good, but it includes kindness. It means a nice person to be around. You know, the kind of, of good woman that thinks of the needs of others and goes out of her way to meet those needs. Maybe when a family member or a, someone is upset or discouraged, they respond with sympathy and kind words. And then the seventh thing there points out that the younger women are to be subject to their own husbands. This is also totally out of sync with our modern American culture. But that's what the Word of God says. I mean, when it comes right down to it, ladies, you have a choice to make. Either you do this God's way or you do it your own way. You do it the world's way. The world's way basically asserts self. It stands up for one's rights. It demands Others, basically, to 
to uh, get your own way. It puts demands on others to get your own way. God's way finds and submits first to Jesus as Lord. It judges selfless selfishness, and it seeks the good of others ahead of others, ahead of yourself. God's way is Philippians, Paul writes in Philippians 2, 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. That's what we're called to be as Christians. But here he addresses that specifically to young women. I mean, God's way of submission really grates against our own fallen, selfish human nature. When we think of the word submission, uh, it's not a good word in our culture. It doesn't imply a couple things. It does not imply inferiority at all. That's not what it's meant. And it doesn't imply that a woman becomes a doormat. It doesn't imply that at all. To be subject is really a military term in the original language. It basically says to put oneself in rank under another. That's all it means. See, even though Jesus was equal with the Father, he voluntarily put himself under the Father to carry out the divine plan of salvation. Not my will, but what? Yours be done, he says. Christian marriage is to reflect that image of God. Husbands and wives are to be that earthly picture of Christ and his church, with husbands loving their wives sacrificially and wives respecting and submitting to their husbands, Ephesians 5. And the reason we want to do that, he tells us right there in verse 5, so the word of God will not be dishonored. And that applies to all the qualities that he just listed, including submission. To be real honest, a wife who claims to be a Christian but who does not demonstrate love for her husband and her children, does not demonstrate moral purity, does not demonstrate being a godly homemaker, really it's not a good advertisement for the gospel. But a wife who practices these things stands out from the world's way. And people look at them and, you know, you've all heard the Proverbs 31 Woman, well, it says in that text that she will be praised. And when she is praised, she will deflect the praise to the Lord, giving him glory. Fifth group here, younger men should be sensible, giving a, God, giving a godly, godly example so that others will be attracted to the Savior. In verse 6, he sums up the, the character qualities for young men in one word, self-controlled or sensible And then he turns to Titus, who probably was a relatively young man at this point, and he shows them kind of examples of what it means. And so young young men should be self-controlled. He says in verse 6, all things, in all things. In the original language, that little phrase, in all things, could could go either with the preceding or the following. But stylistically, it goes with basically verse 6. Self-controlled is a, a word that Paul has used over and over again concerning elders, older men, older women. We've talked about that. It means to be sensible. 
have control over one's passions. And you know what? With that one single word, he really captures the main quality that young men need if they're to be godly. They need to be self-controlled. Young church leaders must set an example of godliness, Paul points out. Paul turns from the younger men and he kind of directs this portion of Scripture here right to Titus himself. He's probably in his 30s at this point, Titus. As we said earlier, there's no age limit here really set for elders. But the title itself kind of explains that they should have a few miles under their belts. You take uh, Charles Spurgeon, for example. He began as a pastor at the age of 17. (laughs) That's kind of crazy. That was two years after he was saved. Somehow he managed to set an example of godliness and sound doctrine even in his youth. I don't think I'd recommend somebody becoming a pastor at the age of 17. But Paul here lists four areas where Titus is to be an example. First of all, young church leaders must show themselves to be an example in good deeds. See, that stands in stark contrast to what Paul just exposed in verse 16. They profess to know God, these false teachers, but by their deeds they what? They deny him, being detestable, being disobedient and worthless for any good deed. We're not saved by our good deeds, amen? But we are saved on two good deeds. God has prepared beforehand deeds that we should be doing. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we kind of forget verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has even prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Good deeds are to be done in obedience with God's word, out of love for him and for others. They include everything from listening to someone to praying for somebody, talking to somebody, maybe preparing a meal for someone, maybe visiting a shut-in or a family who's gone through a trial or a troubling time. Young church leaders also must be pure in doctrine. Here's that word again. The word for pure is used only here in the New Testament. It means not corrupted. There's one word that's related to it that means immortal or imperishable. But here the focus is really on Titus' teaching. He says, don't get corrupted with false doctrine that would spoil and not nourish the hearers. Pure doctrine, sound, healthy doctrine are the one and the same. Purity in doctrine assumes that there's an objective, knowable standard for pure doctrine. Don't buy into the lie that says, well, doctrine is not important and you know what you believe on different things is irrelevant. We're all in the body of Christ. Let's just focus on the, the majors. Let's just love Jesus, hold hands, sing kumbaya, and get along with everybody. There's segments of the church today that believes that you can't really know truth. 
So they just want to have a conversation with everybody. That's not right either. Well, younger church leaders also must be dignified. It's connected in their need for purity and doctrine. Titus is to teach God's pure truth in such a manner as to command respect for the word and submit to its authority. I mean, you know, there's a place for illustrations or humor in the pulpit, clearly. But sometimes you hear somebody, that's all you hear. It's just a big comedy session. Paul says, you know what, there should be a seriousness of those who stand behind a pulpit and teach the word of God. Because you're dealing with eternal truth. You're dealing with people's souls. Fourthly, church leaders must be sound in speech that is beyond reproach. And that kind of broadens the, the area here of Titus's teaching, to, not just when you're teaching, but everyday speech. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear it. A little later on in Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 4, he says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. Other verses we don't have time to go into tell us to put off angry or bitter words. We shouldn't be yelling or cursing, gossiping or slandering others. We need to be an example. We need to teach in a dignified way. Well, the result of these godly examples is that the enemy will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. That's what he points out here. He says, that's why we live these godly examples, beloved. I mean, really, here Paul wants us to understand that this is an application here for every Christian. If you take a stand for Jesus Christ, you will become the object of attacks against your character and against your beliefs. Ungodly people, people who are not Christ followers, are threatened by those who proclaim or to exemplify God's holy standards for living. A good example of that is look at Tim Tebow. Whether he can play football or not, irrelevant. He's definitely standing up for Christ. He's outspoken about his faith. People just can't deal with that. So expect to be attacked if you speak out for Christ. Um, the next group here deals with slaves. And in our modern time, we, we don't necessarily use the word slave or relate to slaves. We can call servants, but the word is literally slaves. But I like to kind of address this as, you know, the, maybe the employee-employer relationship in our modern-day vernacular. Uh, they should be subject to their masters, seeking, setting a godly example in their service so that others will be attracted to the Savior. In the New Testament, there's not really an attack on slavery as an institution. But it does speak of the, the, the relationship between slaves and, ma- and, and masters. And they, they're all equal brothers in Christ. That's why we read out of Galatians 3.28. And Paul really commands the masters to treat their slaves humanely with justice and fairness. 
Remember that they too, even the master, has a master in heaven. But he also commands slaves to be obedient and render good service as slaves as unto Christ. And he gives five waves here quickly as we close. Slaves are to be subject to their masters in everything. Everything that does not require disobedience to God. If you work for somebody and your employer says, hey, I need you to falsify this or I need you to cheat on this or I need you to do this and it's not a, it's not a right thing to do, you don't just go along with the program. You say, I'm sorry, as a believer, I can't do that. As a Christ follower, that's, that's not adding up for me. A Christian employer should not engage in, in things that would not please God. So everything there except causing those to be disobedient to God. Secondly, slaves are to be well-pleasing. It refers to an attitude of, of cheerful service. You know, some people, you know, you talk to them about their jobs, and, man, they're just, it's just, you know, boy, I just hate it, I hate it, I hate it. And I, I want to say, man, at least you got one. <laughs> There's a lot of people that are looking for jobs that don't have one. We should seek to please our employer, do the best we can for them, even when they're not looking. In 1 Timothy 6.2, Paul says this, um, he's talking, if slaves had believing masters, they should serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. So whether your boss is a Christian or not is really irrelevant. As long as they're not telling you to do something that's dishonoring to Christ, you need to do it with all your heart and you need to do it in a joyful way. Thirdly, slaves are not to be argumentative. The idea here is you mouth off. You have no respect. You talk back. You don't do what you're told to do. You do it your own way instead of the way you're shown. I've talked to a lot of people over the years who have been employers. And sometimes they say, hey, if you know of anybody that can do this, I said, Oh, okay, I said, there might be somebody in the church. Uh, I don't hire Christians, sorry. What? I've been down that road. <laughs> I've hired people that say they're Christians, and they ended up ripping me off or whatever, so I don't, I don't do that. I thought, wow, you've got to be careful. Thirdly, or fourthly, slaves are not to pilfer. It means to misappropriate, take money, it's not yours. And then the last thing there, slaves are to be loyal, they're to be trustworthy Showing all good faith. Demonstrate that you're dependable. And see, the result of that godly slave's behavior will be that they will adorn the doctrine of God and Savior, our Savior in every respect. That word adorn is interesting. It's the word we get cosmetics from. It means to arrange in an orderly manner so as to enhance the beauty or attractiveness of something. What Paul is saying here is that Christians should set in order their lives with godly behavior so that the world will be attracted to our Savior. Why? Our main, mo- our main goal, our main motive is to glorify Him, to honor Him. God wants us all to focus on becoming His healthy body, His beautiful body in Christ. Not just on the outside but in the inside, in the character, in the heart where it really matters. Sometimes we refer to even a a person or a place. You know, you think of Yosemite and you think of this beautiful 
grandiose valley that's just carved by the hand of God. Or you take a drive down 17-mile drive and where the, the Pacific meets those golf courses there. It's just amazing, the beauty that you see. What happens? People are attracted to those things. That's why they're called tourist attractions, right? People go to see those things because they're beautiful. That's what the body of Christ should be becoming. Something that's beautiful, something that's healthy, so as to attract people to it. There was once an evangelist who was preaching this, in this small town, and he was preaching a very strong message on the text, You Shall Not Steal. The next morning, after his first night there in the revival meetings, he got on a bus and he gave the, the driver of the bus a dollar for his fare. When he went and sat down, he was counting his change and he discovered that he had received a dime too much. He thought to himself that, well, you know, it's no big deal, it's just a dime. So what, he gave me an extra dime. He pocketed the dime. He sat there for a while and he thought, you know, this isn't right. And as he got off the bus, he turned to the driver and said, hey, you gave me an extra time, by the way. You gave me too much. And the driver looked him right in the eye and he goes, yeah, I know. <laughs> I did it on purpose. I saw your ad in the paper and I thought, you know, recognized who you were. I really want to understand if you really live the way you preach. I've always been suspicious of Christians. But you know what? Thank you for being honest. You truly live up to your message. That man went on to go to these meetings and actually came to Christ. All over a silly dime. See, God's healthy program for the church begins when we repent of our sins and we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. If you haven't started yet, you can. You can start this morning by turning your heart to Christ, recognizing your need of a Savior. He's there longing for you to put your faith, your trust in Him. Let's close in a word of prayer and we'll have our communion time together. Father, we thank You for Your Word here this morning. Lord, we pray that as we look at these different age groups and different genders, Lord, and how you want us to relate to them and how their responsibilities fit into the body of Christ, I pray that here at Grace Bible Church that we would be growing into a healthy church for your glory. Lord, that it wouldn't just be about how many are in the congregation, but it would be about the quality of those in the congregation. And Father, it's easy to put on a charade when we come to church. Because it's, it's easy to paste a smile across our face when our hearts are really heavy with pain. And Lord, you call us as your body to be healthy. But sometimes to be healthy, we have to recognize that there's a problem. If there's people here this morning who have failed to recognize their problem of sin in their life, that's what your word says. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't think anybody here this morning would claim that they're perfect, that they never do anything wrong. And that's called sin. And because of that sin, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to take that sin upon himself to pay the penalty of our sin. And when we put our faith and trust in Christ and in his work, 
on the cross and the fact that he came out of the grave three days later. Now he is risen victorious over sin and death. That's why he deserves to be our Savior. Not just because he died on a cross, but because he died and then he was buried. And on the third day, the, the Word of God says that he rose again. And so I pray for those who may not know you, Lord, I pray that you would draw their heart to you, that you would work, do that work in their heart as only you can through the power of your Word and the power of the Spirit. I pray for believers here this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, that we would never forget that there's a lost and dying world outside of these walls that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Christ. Lord, I think of the evangelism team that's going out this afternoon. Lord, and we pray for them. We pray that you would empower them by your spirit, that you would give them wisdom as they encounter people who are lost and that they can share the, the power of the gospel with them. And Lord, we ask that you would do a mighty work in these hearts. Help us now as we prepare our hearts for communion. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to ask the, the men to come.